Welcome to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. Sydney Ideas is the University of Sydney's public events program, providing you with the opportunity to hear leading thinkers from our university and around the world. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome everyone to this event. The Israeli political journalist Gideon Levy making a presentation called The Israelis in the Occupation, A Story of Denial followed by a conversation with Anthony Lowenstein, and then briefly Q&A with you, the audience. How and why are we here? Gideon Levy is in Australia as a guest of the Australian Friends of Palestine to give the Edward Said Memorial Lecture in Adelaide late last week. He's been brought to Sydney by the Coalition for Justice and Peace in Palestine, whose representative, Cathy Peters, liaised with my colleague, Dr. Lucia Zorbera, from the Department of Arabic Language and Cultures in the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences here at Sydney. Thanks to them and to Meredith Hall from Sydney Ideas, they've made all this possible. Lucia, in turn, asked me to chair, and there is a connection. Together with a colleague in the Department of Hebrew, Biblical and Jewish Studies, we offer a unit called Palestine, Israel in the Middle East. That is, it's taught collaboratively between our three departments. The only one I know of taught in this mode. Now, anyone who follows the situation in Israel-Palestine will know Gideon Levy's journalism with Haaretz, the liberal daily newspaper. If not, you may have seen him with Emma Alberici trying to grill him on late line on Monday night. You know he counts as controversial. And of course, what journalist worth her salt isn't? Speaking truth to power, uncovering crimes. All states commit them to varying degrees. That's why our government is uncomfortable with journalists poking around Manus Island. We all know that freedom of speech is elemental to democracy because it allows criticism of power abuses, whether committed by the state or by the private sector, and then hopefully the correction of policy. Now universities have a special role to play in this regard as institutionalized spaces of innovation. We are not a parliament or a Greek agora where the aim of speech is to mobilize political opinion and where speech can degenerate into demagogy, where the logic of communication is governed by, say, the priorities of House of, House of Cards and Game of Thrones. Well, I was going to mix them up. Game of Cards and House of Thrones. Now, by contrast, in the academy, the aim of speaking and listening is obviously different. We're here to learn something. For example, what I like to call perspectival thinking. That is understanding phenomena from many viewpoints, indeed especially from those that one might find intuitively repugnant. That's the first step towards developing an independent perspective on things, emancipated from your sources and from authorities, whether political or indeed academic authorities. That's why dogmatism is the enemy of learning processes. The ideal countenance is one in which you leave yourself open to the strong argument. Doing so, though, takes a certain emotional discipline, and it's harder than you think. And that's why I ask for a certain decorum from everyone. 
especially on this issue. That means no interruptions to begin with. I think we can all take that as given. But second, during the open discussion where you'll line up at these microphones on either side, please be concise in asking your questions rather than using it as an opportunity as a soapbox to disseminate your own talking points. There's only one speaker here tonight, and that's Gideon Levy, in conversation then with Tony Lowenstein. If you go on a bit long, I'll have to ask you to pose your question a bit like, you know, Tony Jones on Q&A. Now to our speakers. First, our discussant. Anthony Lowenstein is an independent journalist who has written for many international newspapers, the New York Times, The Guardian, and so forth, and is the author of three books. Uh, the one that catapulted him into fame and notoriety here in Sydney, of course, was My Israel Question. I well remember the controversy about 10 years ago. Then The Blogging Revolution, and more recently, Prophets of Doom and Disaster Capitalism, Making a Killing Out of Catastrophe. He's also the co-producer of a documentary called Disaster Capitalism. He's appeared on the BBC, Al Jazeera, the ABC, and many other outlets. And he's worked in some of the most challenging places in the world, including Afghanistan, Honduras, Saudi Arabia, China, and across the Middle East. In the last years, he's been based in South Sudan and in East Jerusalem, where we in fact met up last July. He's currently working on a book about the global war on drugs. Now, our very special guest, of course, is Gideon Levy, the eminent Israeli journalist and commentator whose weekly column for the newspaper Haaretz often focuses on the Israeli occupation of Palestinian territories. He was born in 1953 in Tel Aviv and began his career in journalism as a soldier in 1971 at the tender age of 18, working for the army radio. A few years later, in 1978, he worked for the then opposition leader, Shimon Peres, as a political aide. And then, in 1982, he returned to journalism, joining Haaretz, where he still writes today. He's the author of two books, collections of his articles, Twilight Zone, Life and Death Under the Israeli Occupation, 2004, and in 2010, The Punishment of Gaza. Not for nothing is he internationally so well known. Levy defines himself as a patriotic Israeli precisely because he expects his fellow citizens to live up to the values expressed in the lofty rhetoric of the Declaration of Independence. And to that end, he's willing to take risks. He's referred to the construction of settlements on private Palestinian lands as the most criminal enterprise in Israel's history. And in July 2014, in the midst of another war on Gaza, Levy wrote an op-ed entitled, uh, well, in which he denounced Israeli pilots for, on their bombing missions over the Gaza Strip, which led to a vehement public reaction that required ultimately the hiring of bodyguards for his safety. Now, lest we feel smug about this vehement public reaction, he was spat on in public, for example, let's recall what happens to journalists in this country when they so much as hint at criticism of our Anzac cult. They're shunned and they lose their jobs. Now, being a good journalist takes quite a lot of courage. Like Anthony Lowenstein, Gideon Levy has undertaken a personal voyage of discovery about these issues, from uh, a naive youth to a critical posture. Now, I've not met Gideon Levy before, but I've been reading his newspaper columns and his newspaper, more generally, Haaretz, for years. It's hopefully an English edition. And I've been struck by his persistence, his steadfastness, and his moral clarity. With these attributes, he reminds me, in fact, of an Old Testament prophet. We know they were reviled at the time of their Jeremiads, but 
we remember them today. And with that, thank you so much for joining us, Mr Levy. Over to you, please. Thank you very much. It was really worse to do all the way to here, to hear things that I can never hear in Israel. <laughs> thank you very much, Professor Moses. Thank you very much for all of you to come tonight. I guess that if this event would have taken place in the Tel Aviv University or the Hebrew University, I imagine myself a phone box would be enough to gather all the people who would come to listen to me. And I'm really, really excited to be here tonight. We are concluding today one week in Australia, first visit in Australia. Two things happened to me, to us, me and my partner, Katrin. First of all, we fall in love with your country, but this happens to so many people, I guess. We fall in love with the people we met. We made new friends. And then in many ways also, we felt at home yesterday in Canberra, because at least in few of the meetings I had there, without getting into details, I felt that the Israeli right-wingers are quite moderate relatively to what I heard in Canberra yesterday. <laughs> and this was... And this was rather astonishing, really, to make all this way to here to realize that Avigdor Lieberman is a moderate, <laughs> to realize that uh, Benjamin Netanyahu is a great man for justice and human peace. <laughs> this is something that really, for this, I, I, I didn't expect this to happen, and it never happened to me before, thanks to your politicians, but they were so kind and so nice to me, and I'm very grateful for this visit, for this opportunity to get to know all of you. I would like to thank the University of Sydney and all the good people who organized our tour. From my point of view, it's a great success. But this is more or less the only optimistic uh, messages that I can deliver tonight. From now on, we'll get into depression, I'm afraid. But I'll do my best to find some kind of hope. I was born in Tel Aviv, as you just heard from Professor Moses, and I was really a good boy Tel Aviv. I was a typical product of Israeli education system, of Israeli media. I was trained to believe that we, the Jews in Israel, we are always the right ones, the Arabs are the wrong ones. I was trained to believe that we are the David and they are the Goliath. I was trained to believe that the Palestinians have only one thing, not only the Palestinians, all the Arabs have only one thing in their mind, and this is to kick us to the ocean. I believe that we are struggling for our existence, and I believe that the occupation was forced on us. I, you mentioned, Professor Moses, all my sins, including being an aide to Shimon Peres and serving the Israeli army, things that I'm not sure I would have done today, but then I was young and stupid, and now, 40, 30 years later, after covering the Israeli occupation for over 30 years, week after week, I came to total different conclusions. I'm a total different person, total different political animal than I used to be then, before I started to do something very, very simple, very, very basic. You know what I've done? I started to travel to the occupied territories something that so very few Israelis and so very few Australians who come over 
as guests of the Israeli government or the Israeli embassy or the Jewish community, so very few people do. And I truly believe that the more people will see the reality. I don't know one person, one honest person, who had been to the occupied territories, who had seen it with open eyes and open heart and wasn't shocked. I don't know anyone like this. The Israeli occupation celebrates its 50 years now, this year. Let me tell you, it's just the first 50 years. The end of the occupation seems getting farer and farer. We are today much farer from ending the occupation than 10 or 20 years ago. And this should lead us to the first conclusion. The occupation is there to stay. The occupation is not a temporary phenomena. In the first years of the occupation, Israel claimed that this is temporary until we'll get a settlement with the Palestinians. I remember when we didn't even know how to call the occupied territories. We tried to call all kinds of names. We didn't know how long will we stay there, at least we, the innocent citizens. But today, when Israel is 70 years old and only 19 years it existed without the occupation and 50 years with the occupation, it's very clear we are not dealing with a temporary phenomena. And one should take it into consideration. I'll say more than this. There was never an Israeli prime minister or any other statesman who really meant to put a final end to the occupation. Never ever. There were those who wanted to ease the occupation, maybe to limit it in many ways, to get to financial peace, to get to better terms with the Palestinian people, but there was none of them who meant to put an end, a total and final end to the Israeli occupation. How do I know it? Very simple. Because there was never an Israeli prime minister who stopped the settlement project. And anyone who builds settlements does not have the slightest intention to put an end to the occupation. As simple as this. You don't build a terrace in the occupied territories in order to evacuate it. And as long as this project went on, it was very clear that Israel has no intention to put an end to the occupation. Why should Israel put an end to the occupation? The occupation is paying very well for us Israelis. Most of us don't know about it much. Most of us don't care about it much. And why would we bother about it at all when the Israeli media is also helping us to know so little and to know such biased information about the occupation. So we live with it in peace. And it's for many, many years that I'm asking myself again and again, how can it be? How can it be that quite immoral people like the Jewish people in Israel, in the state of Israel, how can it be that we live with such peace with the occupation? How can it be that those daily crimes are taking, part, taking place not over the oceans, not in colonies behind the mountains, 15 minutes drives from, drive from our homes, half an hour drive from our homes. How can it be that there are so many questions, so little question marks, so little moral doubts about what is being done on our behalf on a daily basis? Because some of you know Israelis, and I guess that we will all agree they are not monsters. Whenever there is a catastrophe in the world, Israel is always the first one to send 
rescue missions, to, to earthquakes, to floods. Most of the Israelis will help any old lady to cross the road many times, even if she doesn't want to cross the road. <laughs> people with values. How come that these people, who is sensitive to so many things, when it comes to the occupation, lives in such denial without any even debate? Some of you remember the days in which two Israelis, the jokes say the two Israelis share three views. Today, three Israelis hardly share one view, especially not about the occupation, because the occupation is totally not on the table. People come from abroad and watch the Israeli discourse and are amazed. How can it be that so little is discussed? Campaigns to the elections. We will fight Netanyahu for the cigars that he is getting as president. We will fight Mrs. Netanyahu for the champagne that she is drinking on our account. We will fight really for many, many just causes. And nothing about the occupation. You don't hear it. You know that today in the Israeli parliament, 120 members, they are leftists and right-wingers. There is not one single Jewish member that the struggle against the occupation is his or her first ticket. Not even one. There are many who struggle against the occupation, very courageous members of parliament. There are others, obviously, the majority who support it. But there's no one that this is his first, first flag, first cause. Can it be that the biggest drama of Israel, the most crucial thing that affects Israeli society, that affects our existence in this part of the world, is hardly discussed, hardly analyzed, hardly mentioned? And therefore, I ask myself, how can it be? So first of all, obviously, the Israeli media, which is always accused as a leftist mafia, and some of the journalists are very leftist, maybe even the majority of them. But the Israeli media, as a media, is the biggest collaborator of the Israeli occupation. They adopt automatically the narrative of the government, of the IDF, and they don't leave any room for an alternative narrative. If you are not a Zionist, you don't exist. In Israel, you can be only a Zionist. If you are not a Zionist, you are excluded. You are blamed in more than treason. But it's not only about the media. It's much deeper than this. And I want to suggest to you today kind of explanation. How can the Israeli society live so much in peace with the occupation for so many years? <coughs> without almost any change. And I want to recall here three sets of beliefs or values which are very deep-rooted in our daily life as Israelis or Jewish Israelis, which might give you an explanation how can a society live in such denial. The first very deep-rooted belief in us Jews in Israel is the fact or the belief, it's not the fact, it's the belief that we are the chosen people. Seculars and religious, obviously. If you scratch under the skin, you will find, even if it will not be phrased like this, but the belief is that we are somehow better than all the others. We know better. 
The international law applies for every country on earth, but we are a special case. It cannot apply on us. The world is called to absorb asylum seekers, refugees. We cannot absorb even not 40,000 Africans because we are a special case. We can't, we are not the same. We are different. And as being the chosen people, you, the world, cannot tell us what to do because we know better. It is very deep-rooted. The second deep-rooted belief is based, on the, is based on the heritage, on the history, which we are really being taught from kindergartens. And this is that, obviously, we are the biggest victim in history, but not only the biggest victim in history, but also the only victim in history. And as being the only victim in history, we have the right to do almost anything. The late Golda Meir phrased it once in her way. She was Prime Minister of Israel, unforgettable. And she said once that after the Holocaust, the Jews have the right to do whatever they want. If it's phrased like this or in other way, I think that if you will really get to know Israelis, it is somewhere in the in the back of her mind, the feeling that after the Holocaust, nobody is going to tell us what to do because we are the only victims. The third deep-rooted belief, which is maybe the most dangerous one and the most cr crucial one, is the belief, and I'll choose my words, is the belief that the Palestinians are not exactly human beings like us. They don't love the children like we, like we love the, our children. They don't appreciate life like we appreciate life. They were born to kill, let's face it. They are uneducated. They are not human in many cases. They are much more cruel than we are. They're much more brutal than we are. They are not exactly human beings like us. It's not only that they don't deserve the same rights in this piece of land, this goes without saying. But it is also because they are different human beings. We are different than them. We love our children. We care about them. We mourn. When we lose a child, we mourn. They never mourn. They celebrate losing their children. And therefore, if this is the case, human rights doesn't apply so much because we are not dealing really with same human beings. I can assure you that if you will again scratch under the skin leftists and right-wingers in Israel, you will somewhere find this attitude. Some will admit it, others will not admit it. But by the end of the day, this is the biggest, biggest obstacle for any kind of change. This deeply rooted belief that the Palestinians are not exactly like us. I truly believe that the day that we will overcome this obstacle, the day that is more Israelis will perceive the Palestinians as equal human beings, but really so. This will be the day that change will come, and we are getting farther and farther from this day. Some of you follow what's going on in Israel in the recent year or two. Anti-democratic legislations. Racism becomes politically correct. Racism is everywhere. But racism in Israel in the last months and years becomes politically correct, not only toward the Palestinians, by the way, 
toward even Ethiopian Jews, toward asylum seekers from Africa and others. Israel is turning to become more and more nationalistic. We have now the most right-wing government ever. I thought, as I said before, that it cannot get any more extreme, but after visiting Canberra, I understand it can still <laughs> go worse than this. There is something to look forward. But meanwhile, Israel went quite away in dehumanizing and demonizing the Palestinians. I'll give you one example which might reflect it to you. I remember in the year of 87 or 88 it was, when I started my coverage of the occupation and I was exposed to the first story then of a Palestinian woman who lost her child, who lost her baby in a checkpoint while giving birth. This was quite a terrible story because this poor woman went to three different checkpoints and in all three checkpoints she was rejected. Finally, she gave birth in the third checkpoint and she was, and she was begging the soldiers to let her get the baby at least to the hospital. They refused, she was walking, it was January, it was cold winter in Jerusalem. She was walking two and a half kilometers with the baby to Augusta Victoria Hospital. And while she arrived there, the baby was declared, was, was, was dead. I remember when I first, this was really my beginning of covering the occupation, one of my very first stories. First of all, I, I really hope that it's not true. And I, I was told always about the Arab fantasy and the Arab exaggeration. And I was really hoping that this falls to this they were exaggerating, it's not true, but I realized very quickly that it is true. But what is important to, to mention here that after I published this story, there was, I don't want to say that there was an earthquake in Israel, obviously not, but many people cared about this story. And it even reached a cabinet meeting and some officers were dismissed. There was some kind of bad reaction to this story, some kind of reaction. Ever since then, I covered at least seven, eight, maybe 10 women who lost their babies throughout the years in checkpoints, and never was it any kind of public relations in Israeli public opinion. Because as time goes on, as the occupation becomes part of our life, as the occupation becomes a natural phenomena, you know, like you have days with rain and days with sun, sunny days, like you have winter and summer, like you have Sunday and Tuesday, you have also an occupation. Goes without saying, this is part and parcel of our lives. Most of the Israelis were already born into this reality. They don't see anything wrong about it. Some of them still believe that it was imposed on us. You know, there were worse occupations in history. There are maybe even today. There were some longer occupations, but I don't, I don't remember, I don't know about one occupation. Maybe you will correct me, Professor Moses. One occupation in which the occupier presents himself as the victim. We didn't want it. It was imposed on us. And going back again to this unforgettable lady, Golda Meir, she said once that we will never forgive the Palestinians for forcing us to kill their children. <laughs> we killed their children, yes. And we are the victims. It was forced on us. 
So the occupation became a normal part of life, hardly mentioned, with better times and worse times, more violent times and more peaceful times, and always the occupation. After covering it for 30 years, at least once a week I go there, I can tell you that on one hand, nothing changed. On the other hand, so many things changed. It remained the same reality. And believe me, my friends, except of some Palestinians who might be here, none of us can imagine himself what does it mean to live under the occupation. None of us. On, on, on a routine basis, not in very dramatic periods when there is bloodshed and things like this, but really on a daily basis. What does it mean to be a young person in Gaza 2017? And Gaza deserves some sentences. 10 years of the biggest experiment in human beings in history. 10 years of putting 2 million people in a cage, in the biggest cage in the world, and watching what will happen to 2 million people when they are in a cage for 10 years or maybe even more. 10 years of young people and old people who have no perspective whatsoever. And the other day in Adelaide, I stood up a young student there. She said she's from Gaza. She was about to, to cry. And she asked the people to remember Gaza. And she sat down. And then she came to me and she told me her story. Her mother, she is a student here in Adelaide. And she lives here for three years now, and her mother, who is 52, got cancer in Gaza. And she went to Gaza, and she did anything possible to try to get her out, to get some kind of treatment, and she failed for months, and her mother died by the age of 53. And that's just an example, because I was told this story here, but this happens almost on a daily basis. People are living and dying in Gaza in inhuman conditions. We should remember this. When we come to all the political discussions, and we'll get to them immediately, we have to remember that by the end of the day, when we are sitting here, horrible things are happening in Gaza and obviously also in the West Bank. So Gaza is in a cage. The West Bank is under brutal occupation. Hundreds of people are arrested every week. Hundreds of people are arrested every week in a procedure which has nothing to do, obviously, with any kind of, of, of uh, legal uh, uh, principles. Soldiers come at night with dogs, wake up the whole, I guess you know all those stories, wake up the whole family, take one, suspected or not suspected, many children, many, many children who are not treated according to the Israeli law, even interrogated without the parents, without lawyer. I don't want to get to those details. I guess that most of you know by now that we don't know anything. What does it mean to live under the Israeli occupation? And the question is, for how long? And the question is, if you can sit all over the world, and in Tel Aviv, and in Jerusalem, and in Israel, and do nothing. And the question is, if in the 31st century, such reality can take place without any kind of 
resistance, support, solidarity, and above all, political pressure to put an end to it. Now, I'm afraid to say here the change will not come from within the Israeli society, and please don't expect a change from within the Israeli society. It will not take place. I wish it would have taken place, but I don't, I'm not sure that this is realistic right now. I don't think that it is realistic to expect a change from within the Israeli society because life in Israel is too good and brainwash system is too effective. The Israelis have no incentive to go for a change. Let's face it. Israel is hardly paying any price for the occupation. Life in Israel, as part of you know, try to get a table in a restaurant in Tel Aviv. Try to listen to what young people are talking about in the cafes and clubs. Nothing to do with the occupation. Most of the Israelis have even never been there. And those who have been there have been there only in their military service, and we will not call this a visit. And as long as life is so good and brainwash is so effective, why would Israel go for a change? Why? What for? Who cares? And the only way to get to a change is only by changing this equilibrium in which Israel is just gaining from the occupation and doesn't pay anything for the occupation, is not being taken accountable for the occupation, and no Israeli is paying any price for the occupation. So after many years in which the world tried in good ways, after many years of an ongoing masquerade called the peace process, the longest peace process in history, which never led anywhere, after all those years of carrots and carrots, of lip service of the West, of the United States, of Europe, of all the other countries, it's about time after 50 years to realize that it doesn't work. The occupation becomes just stronger and stronger from year to year. And you know, many times in history, you have to admit that if something goes wrong, you have to change strategy, tactics. But you cannot go on with the same old game of another peace process, another peace plan. You know how many peace plans the United States put on the table. And here I want to say something that must be mentioned, that if we ever had an American president who would, like to, who would have liked to put an end to the occupation, the Israeli occupation would have come to its end within months. But there was never such a president, including not Barack Obama, whose heart was in the right place, who knew exactly what does it mean, the occupation. But all this didn't happen and doesn't seem to happen unless you believe in the new president of the United States, I guess. Whenever I mention his name, people start to laugh. I just say, Donald Trump, best joke in town. But we don't expect this man to have anything to do with minorities, with human rights, with justice, with reasonable things. So we face a situation in which the United States, at least the government of the United States, will do nothing. Israel will do nothing. And the question is, and this is really to you much more than to myself, 
Will we live with it in peace another 50 years? Will we do nothing about it? Can we afford ourselves? Do, you, do we remember what does it mean to this woman in Gaza another 50 years in the cage or another 50 years in a refugee camp in the West Bank? Do we understand that Israel cannot claim that it is a democracy after 50 years of this tyranny in its backyard. And believe me, the military occupation is one of the most brutal and cruel tyrannies on earth today. And I know what I say. There is not many totalitarian regimes as brutal, as cruel as this regime. And if we perceive it as a permanent phenomenon, as I think it should be perceived, are we indifferent and waiting to the Messiah, to the peace process, to the next American president, to what? And what can we tell to the Palestinians? Right now, the Palestinians are maybe in the worst conditions, divided, desperate, weak, lonely. Arab world has other issues, as you know. But I'm not here to speak on behalf of the Palestinians, and I must tell you, I don't represent them. I, I, I'm even ready to say something more than this. I care much more about the Israelis right now. Because by the end of the day, Israel is going to pay the biggest price. It will take some time. And me as an Israeli, and you mentioned my ridiculous aspiration to be an Israeli patriot, but I truly believe in it. As someone who cares about the future of Israel, we have to ask ourselves, what are we doing? And here I want to say that the world has the key and civil societies have the key and the only key right now to go for a change. Because governments will only follow civil societies. Because also for government, it is so convenient to have this lip service of condemning the settlements, everyone is condemning. Being for the two-state solution, everyone is for the two-state solution. I don't know one state in the world which objects the two-state solution. Even Micronesia, Israel's second friend, is in favor of the two-state solution. Benjamin Netanyahu is in favor of this two-state solution. So we are all happy we have the solution on the wall. Not only we do nothing to achieve it, we did everything to prevent it, to destroy it. And I do think, with all the difficulties, that we reach a stage in which we have to realize that this train left the station. We wasted so many years about talking about the two-state solution. And at the same time, Israel built so many settlements that when we reach a situation in which there are 700,000 settlers, including East Jerusalem, there is no one single Israeli politician who will ever be able to evacuate these numbers. And there is no viable Palestinian state without evacuating all the settlers until the last of them. And therefore, I would like to suggest here a new opening. It's a long way to go. I don't know how will it end, but the discourse must change because the last, the old discourse failed. And we have to 
talk or to start to talk about something very simple, equal rights. And Israel obviously will object it like it objects any, any kind of solution. I must say the majority of Israelis, for them it's hard to digest even to hear it. I always say that I represent something like 10 Israelis, but it includes my partner who is Swedish, so it's only nine Israelis <laughs> who would talk today about the one-state solution. But we have to analyze it without any emotions and to ask ourselves, A, is the two-state solution still possible? Go to the West Bank, see it in your own eyes, and tell me if you believe that there will be there a free, viable Palestinian state, if it can be at all. Secondly, if the answer is no, as I believe it is, and I'll be happy to be convinced that the two-state solution is still an option and we are just getting close to it. But if it is not an option, we have to start to think about the alternative. Now, before we all get shocked from the one-state solution, and before we're bringing up what's going on in Spain, and what happened in Yugoslavia, and what happens in Canada, and what happens in, all, in Belgium, and all those B-national states, before this, I must remind you, we are living now 50 years in a one-state. The only problem is that part of it is under a non-democratic regime and a brutal regime. So it's all about changing the regime of this state. Israel is today maybe the only country in the world with three regimes. This liberal democracy in the front, very impressive. People like me are the best proof. I have full freedom of speech, a democracy. Then there is the regime toward the Palestinian Israelis, 20% of our population, who have all former civil rights but are deeply discriminated. I don't want to get to it now. And then comes the third regime in the backyard, in the occupied territories, which looks like apartheid, which walks like apartheid, and is apartheid. And nobody will tell me. And nobody will convince me that when you see two villages in the Jordan Valley and one village is with water, with electricity, with freedom, with everything, and next to it there is another village without water, without electricity, without any, any rights, nobody will tell me that this can be called in any other way but apartheid. Not identical to the, not identical to the South African apartheid, but in many ways worse than the South African apartheid. So the question comes back to us, will we agree to live with it? That in the 21st century, there is another apartheid state in, because once Israel will declare, will respond to our challenge, equal rights, when Israel will say no to equal rights, Israel will declare itself as an official apartheid system. Because <coughs> there is no other answer. If you say no to equal rights, you admit that you have an apartheid system. Because there is no half pregnancy and there is no half democracy. And if you say no to equal rights, you declare yourself apartheid. 
officially. And then the question is, will the world, will the West, will the democratic or so-called free world accept in another apartheid system in the 21st century? So that's the challenge now to start to speak about things that we never spoke before or part of us or most of us never spoke before. Continuing to talk about the two-state solution, in my view, is playing to the hands of the occupation because everyone agrees on the two-state solution and nobody does anything to realize it. And one word I want to say, especially in this evening, about friendship to Israel. I want to claim here, and this is aimed as at anyone who cares about the future of Israel, anyone who thinks that, who defines himself as an Israel's friend, any member of the Jewish community, obviously. It's very touching to hear from the Jewish community in this country, Israel right or wrong. It's really touching. But when Israel is wrong, real friendship means criticize it. I don't consider blind automatic support as friendship. When your relative or friend is drug addicted, you can support him and supply him with money and he will buy more drugs. He will be very grateful to you. This is not friendship. This is not caring. The other way is to try to send him to a rehabilitation center. He will be very mad at you. This will be friendship. And Israel, my friends, is obviously, needless to say, occupation addicted. So therefore, I would like to say here in a very clear way, not every criticism of Israel is anti-Semitic. Don't fall to this trap. The Jewish establishment and the Israeli propaganda is trying to manipulating those who raise a voice of conscience not for the Palestinians and not against Israel, but for justice. They try to manipulate and to put this accusation which paralyzes almost everybody here and especially in Europe, anti-Semitism. BDS is anti-Semitic. Any critic is anti-Semitic. We are self-hating Jews. No, we shouldn't shut our mouths. We shouldn't take this as something that paralyzes us. There is the right to criticize Israel. There is the duty, from my point of view, there is the duty to criticize Israel. Any person of conscience must criticize Israel. And those accusations and those efforts to shut our mouths just show how weak is the Israeli argument, how weak is the Israeli narrative. So to conclude, because I think I spoke much more than I deserve, I would like to say one thing. Things don't look very hopeful, as you might understand, but I think that changing the discourse will open us up. I know what happened to me, and I came to this one-state idea only after two visits in South Africa when I saw that the unthinkable can happen. And I know very well before someone from South Africa will stand up and tell me how terrible it is today in South Africa. Yes, many difficulties, but South Africa today is a much more just place than 25 years ago. Nobody can argue about this with all the difficulties. 
and all the terrible threats of the white community in South Africa, that there will be a bloodbath, that every, all the white people will be slaughtered. All this didn't happen. So by the end of the day, we have to remember, and this might give you some kind of optimism, because I really do, wouldn't like to end my lecture with so much desperation. Many things in history happened in the most unexpected way. Many times we see here, you have such beautiful trees in this country. Many times you see a tree, strong, big, green, all of a sudden falls down. And then you look inside the tree and you realize that it was totally rotten. And what is more rotten than the Israeli occupation? What is more rotten morally than this brutal phenomenon of 50 years now? And if this is not enough for hope, Let's remember that nobody had expected, nobody had foreseen the fall of the apartheid system in South Africa, the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of Soviet Russia. All this happened when no expert in the world had seen it, had foreseen it. And it happened within months in the most unexpected way. So this should give us a hope because by the end of the day, even if right now it seems that Israel is so strong, the occupation is so well established, the Israeli propaganda is so effective all over the world, people believe to all the lies and all the myths, still I think that change will come sooner or later. And if this is not enough for you, so I'm trying my last, last, last weapon, and this is the sentence that not I invented, but it is very valid here. In the Middle East, one should be realistic enough to believe in miracles, and we need miracles. Thank you very much. The word that Gideon didn't mention, but basically what his talk was about, was complicity. And I wanted to spend a few minutes before Goody and I will have a conversation at the front of the room about what complicity in this situation means. What does it mean when you have the majority population of politicians in this country, in the US, Jewish establishments in the US and Australia, companies making money from the occupation? That's what complicity means. A Palestinian authority in the West Bank that is enriching itself with foreign money, including from Australia, complicit in the occupation. Gideon talked mostly correctly about his experiences as an Israeli and his brave descent from the mainstream view. As a non-Israeli, although I'm Jewish, I wanted to say a few things about the complicity of the Jewish community and people associated with the Jewish community. One of the interesting things in the last while is, for those who want to even be more pessimistic, is that Israel now sells itself around the world as experts on occupation. So if you want to know who's going to be building the likely, maybe slight wall that the great Donald Trump wants to build on the US-Mexican border, that's probably going to be partly an Israeli company. They're bidding for it as we speak. If you want to find out who is training police forces and armies around the world in managing, so to speak, minorities, African-Americans, indigenous populations. It's Israel. It happens here. 
happens in the US, happens in Europe. Israeli companies go to Europe and are currently selling walls and sensor technology to keep out Muslims and other refugees. This is Israel's export. This is what Israel in the 21st century has become. It arguably always was like this. But what Israel is doing from its own perspective is to transform itself into an expert on occupation. Because as Gideon rightly said, it's permanent. I first started visiting there in 2005 and I've just been living there for the last year and a half in East Jerusalem and spent time in the West Bank and Gaza. And one thing Gideon didn't mention, just in case you don't know, Israelis aren't allowed to go to Gaza. The last time you were there was 2006, 10 years ago. Um, a few Israelis have been, but in general you can't get into Gaza. You're blocked as an Israeli citizen. And I'm not an Israeli citizen, so I was able to go and as a journalist. And as Gideon rightly said, the situation there has never been worse. And the complicity of what goes on in Gaza and in the West Bank and in Israel proper for those who are not Jewish is so profound, and as someone who has maybe over the years often believed that what is happening there could not last forever. Forever is a very long time, and as Gideon said, we don't know what's going to happen in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Now I believe it is permanent, the occupation, I mean. The occupation, by the way, is not just in the West Bank and Gaza. It is, for many um, Palestinians within Israel itself, an occupation of a different sort, to be sure. And to me, what that means when it is permanent is asking ourselves, are we going to be holding account people outside Israel, let alone Israelis, who are making that possible? Companies, for example, who profit from occupation, to me, should be boycotted. Full stop. Companies that are involved... <laughs> it's not that even hard to find out which companies are involved, both in the occupation within Palestine and companies that are involved in, say, trying to build Trump's wall. Often it's public, sometimes not, but often public. There are a multitude of ways to institute shareholder boycotts, shareholder pressure, institutional boycotts, a range of different things. And this is being done on a range of other issues. There is, for example, a slight um, segue, a growing movement of not a lot of people, but discussion about the possibility of boycotting Australia as a tourist or sporting boycott because of our appalling refugee policy. Countries should... If the so-called normal way of doing things don't work, politics, a so-called make-believe peace process, alternative ways need to happen. And to me, holding organisations and individuals to account for what is happening in Palestine is the only way this is going to happen. Holding them to account economically. The back pocket is the only thing that's going to actually impact people's, in my view, point of view. If they are suffering politically or economically. And let's have a chat. Come up. You talk, Gideon, about the fact that it's permanent. When you think about this and you write about this three times a week in Haaretz, where does it end? Where do you think it might end? How do you think it might end? I know that's an impossible question to answer in a way, but where do you think it potentially might end? in the coming decades, say, let alone 100 years is far away? Many times I try to wake up in an optimistic mood 
I'm exercising, I'm going to the swimming pool. I really try to train myself to think positive and try to find one scenario which I can really draw and will be realistic for the short run, which lead us to a change. And I must tell you, I fail systematically. Right now, for the coming future, the very short future, I don't see any way out of it. Not with the present actors in the international arena, not with the present Israeli leadership, and by the way, also not with the coming Israeli leadership or those who are potentially going to replace one day Netanyahu, don't have any hope at them either. Which of course leads us to BDS. For those who don't know, BDS is Boycott, Divestment, Sanction. You touched on that a little bit in your talk, but not a great deal. And I think, would it be fair to say that the only movement that leaves elements within the Israeli and Jewish establishment in apoplexy is BDS? This fear that you can't destroy it militarily. You can't really, I guess you theoretically could kill all the BDS leaders, which I fear is something that's possible. But we laugh, but Israel's done that before to many leaders of Palestinian rights over the last 30 years. Talk a little bit about your thoughts as an Israeli who supports BDS. I know you did not years before, but now you do. Talk us a little bit through that and what that means. It was not easy for me as an Israeli who lives in Israel, who does not boycott Israel, to call others to boycott Israel and to call others for BDS. But when time passes and I saw that BDS is the only game in town, it is right now the only effective game which is taking place. I have very little expectations from governments and my only expectations right now are from civil societies. And what can civil societies do? And what is more legitimate than boycott? Israel is using the, same, the very same weapon, calling the world to boycott Iran, put, put sanctions on Iran, going the world, calling the world to boycott Hamas. So Israel is using this weapon, it's a very legitimate weapon. The world, the EU, had put sanctions on Russia after the invasion to Crimea, to Crimea, within weeks and 50 years of occupation did not bring this. Many of us boycott shops which sell meat because we believe in animals' rights. No one tries to delegitimize this boycott. No one claims that this boycott is not a moral one. Others don't buy products from Far East Asia from the sweat shops. Because this is our moral choice, not to buy products which, were, which are based on almost slavery. Nobody claims, I mean, not everyone should participate in, but nobody will claim that this is an illegitimate or criminal attitude. And some of us don't want to go buy products which, in my view, are being produced in a stolen land, and some of us don't want to buy products from a place that its morality is in a big question mark. What is more natural justice just than this? It's a non-violent tool. It was very effective in South Africa, as we know, very effective. 
As a matter of fact, it was one of the main, major, effective tools in South Africa. There it was mainly about sport. Israel is not doing so well with sport, so I'm not sure that with sport it will go so well, but maybe also yes. And by the end of the day, I see the Israeli official reaction, and I don't need any other proof to understand that this is the name of the game, this is the only game in town, when I see almost the hysterical reaction of the Israeli establishment and the Jewish establishment to the BDS. This is the best proof that it is effective. And last word, I must say that BDS has until now very little economical influence, but it is growing, but it has a lot of psychological effect, which I highly appreciate because I truly believe that that's the way to change Israel. That's even the way to save Israel from its own policies. And therefore, after many years of hesitations, yes, I think it is legitimate. And one last word, not in this country, not yet, and I'm quite surprised it didn't happen in Australia yet, but in some states in the United States and in Europe, there's now an ongoing process of criminalization of BDS. BDS is becoming illegal. I was the other few weeks ago in Germany and the condition to get the venue from the municipality of one of the cities there was that I will not mention BDS on stage, which I obviously didn't agree. BDS becomes a crime. On one hand, it shows how weak the Israeli case cause is if you need to make legislations. On the other hand, it shows how powerful the Jewish and Israeli establishment is. You know that in one city in uh, Texas, you tell the story, you know it better than I. You're talking about the story after the recent, um, well, I do know the story. After there was a recent natural disaster, I forget exactly where it was, essentially to receive money from the state the individual had to, I think, not be a public supporter or maybe even a private supporter of BDS. And this caused this crazy outcry, as it should have, and it was rescinded, thankfully. But this is the kind of irrational madness. I think just, by the way, I think it's inevitable there will be attempts to do that here, to criminalise BDS. And I'm actually quite surprised that our wonderful politicians, because they're so busy doing so many other good things, haven't done it yet. <laughs> so better don't mention it, better don't mention it. But in any case, you can be a supporter of BDS, you can be against BDS. What is totally unacceptable is to see BDS as a criminal movement. Don't let it happen in this country, please. So let's just talk briefly about what that means practically, because a lot of issues about BDS are, for example, musician X is invited to come to Israel. A prominent musician, Nick Cave, who was there recently, Australian musician living in the UK, um, Radiohead, they, they announced a tour. And BDS supporters, Roger Waters, the former lead singer of um, Pink Floyd, amongst others, says, you should not go because your presence in Israel, you're performing to what is going to be a Tel Aviv 99.9% .9 Jewish audience, by definition is propaganda for the Israeli state. So do you think, for example, that if a band like Radiohead or a classical musician is invited to come, they should not go. Look, I'm not here to tell other people what to do. I think every one of us should be with his own conscience. I totally appreciate and even admire 
the attitude of Roger Waters, who think that in this time to come to Israel, to amuse the Israelis, to sing them songs when 15 minutes away from the arena or half an hour away from the arena, there is this misery and suffer which those people who come to the concert are accountable for, are responsible for. For people of conscience like Roger Waters, this is too much to be done. He also believes that if more and more artists will say no, maybe Israelis will start to ask themselves, eh, why don't they come? Maybe there is something wrong with us. Maybe something went wrong. So it will not change in one day, and not one Roger Moore Waters will bring the change, and even not 10 or 20 world-famous singers who will boycott Israel, but it's all an ongoing process with one very clear goal. And the goal is to make the Israelis be accountable for the crimes of the occupation. You spoke tonight extensively and eloquently about the 50 years of occupation from 1967, the 50-year anniversary a few months ago. Do you think that that issue, in fact, goes further back to 1948? I don't want to get into a long history lesson right now. Of course, we haven't got time. I've asked that because clearly for a lot of people who look at colonial countries, including our own, New Zealand, Canada, the list goes on, Israel, there are profound unresolved issues with the ways in which the country were founded and the effect of indigenous populations by that founding. For you, as an Israeli citizen, Jewish citizen, do you view, not that we can turn back history, of course, but do you view 1948 and the establishment of Israel as a born in sin, or how do you view those, the establishment of a Jewish state? It can be both. When I was, until I was 20, I think, I never heard the word Nakba. Nobody told me that there was a Nakba, I must tell you. I remember growing up in Tel Aviv, going around in Israel and see all those ruins, very few ruins that they didn't cover up with forests, those ruins along the roads. And I never asked myself, where, where are the people who lived in those beautiful houses? Where are they? Why, why aren't they here? I was told that they all ran away. I was told that the Arab leaders ordered them to run away. I was told that they, this was their choice. I didn't even ask, how come? Okay, they ran away. Why can't they come back? In the first Gulf War, part of you were not born then, but in the first Gulf War, I had a baby of half a year, and I left my home and ran away to Eilat, which is the southern part of Israel. Anyone suspected that I will not have the right to go back? I left my home, yeah, I was a refugee, and I wrote, I am a refugee now, I wrote, I ran away, yes. So I didn't have the right to come back. So all this came to me quite late, but I am not the story, the story is the Nakba, and one thing must be very clear. If the Nakba would have taken place in 48, and stop at 48, I could say, you know, wars are always hand-to-hand, -hand, going hand-to-hand -hand with crimes of war. It was a crime of war. There was the ethnic cleansing. But let's look at the future. 
but the Nakba never stopped. The policy of today is exactly based on the same principles of 48, with the same tools. So therefore, we cannot ignore the Nakba. And we cannot ignore the victims of the Nakba who live until today in refugee camps. We have, and therefore, we have to get to an overall settlement. Otherwise, it will not last. And that's another weak point of the two-state solution. Because the two-state solution says nothing about the refugees. On the other hand, I must say very clearly that there will never be total justice. There will never be total justice. It will be relative justice. The Nakba was a crime, and not all of the victims of the crime will be able to get exactly to the villages, to the, to the homes, to the, to the fields. It is impossible, because by then, you will create a new injustice. So we have to approach it with an open heart, and above all, with recognition. The day that Israel will recognize its responsibility for the Nakba, the day that an Israeli prime minister will ask for forgiveness for the Nakba, will the day of beginning of a new era. Question. So I'm going to shut up now. If anyone wants to ask a question, there's a microphones uh, in various. I'll run it. Yeah, Joe's going to so run. So we all started. We all know we started a little late. So we'll run a little over. If you want to ask a question, could you please take a, uh, a or place in a queue on either side? I would like to also remind everyone, inform you that some colleagues here are live streaming proceedings. Uh, so if you don't want to be live streamed, then you shouldn't ask a question. Okay. Uh, it's too late to sign consent forms. Now, because we're running short of time and because we have about eight or nine people who would like to ask questions, we're going to take four at a time, two on each side. And then Gideon Levy can answer them in a synthetic way. Okay? Uh, please then keep your questions uh, concise. We'll take turns. We'll start with you. Okay. Yes, yesterday I got a post from Al Jazeera that um, from October 8th, over several hundred women, Palestinian and Israelis, had undertaken a two-week march and ended up in Israel asking for peace. I think they call themselves Women Wage Peace. And I was wondering if you want to make a comment on, on that grassroots activism that seems so inspiring when you see that group of people. Thank you. Yes, sir. It looks like you've got something long to read out. You do keep it short, though. Yeah, Brian Concannon. Um, I'd just like to say, um, Gideon and um, Anthony, you were um, a couple of my Jewish heroes. Good on you. <laughs> and um, there's a saying, um, I'd rather be hated for who I am than liked for who I'm not. I think that um, refers to fabulous. Anyway, a couple of quick questions. Um, one, just one um, just, just regarding one. Iran. Just one question. Okay, well, <laughs> forget about Trump being um, Netanyahu's puppet then. Um, we, at, in Australia at the moment, we, um, the Australian government's um, in turmoil over the uh, dual citizen uh, fiasco. Uh, seven or eight politicians have um, had to resign from their post. But um, to date, no Jewish 
dual citizen uh, politicians have um, stood up and been counted. I believe um, it's uh, anyone deemed to have an allegiance to a foreign power is disqualified from holding office. Um, I'd just like your thoughts on what it, we've got a number of Jewish um, dual citizen politicians I, in Parliament. I think we, I think we got it. Thank you. Thank you. But, um, Thank you. That's it. Right to know, do you think? Um, That's it. Thank you. Yes. yes. Yeah, in terms of the support that Israel gets, particularly from the West, <laughs> how important is a country like Australia? Because I suppose a country like the United States would be far more important. Um, what can people in Australia really do, particularly when, if you look at, say, you know, the United States Congress, even if public opinion changes a lot? Um, what's really hurting the Palestinians is this financial and economic and diplomatic support that they're getting, particularly from the United States. So, what, what, what can like, just random people in Australia, for instance, do, really, in the scheme of things? Thank you. Then, last question in this round. Um, first of all, I'd like to thank you very much uh, for your address tonight, and as a journalist, actually say how inspirational your practice uh, is for journalists uh, around the world. What you've said tonight is very much based on the assumption that Israel's fate rests in Israel's hands, and that's why you project that it's going to take a long time. What do you think would be the impact on the Israeli psyche and on the Israeli polity if, um, for example, there were strikes on Tel Aviv or the north of Israel by drones or missiles from Hezbollah, and the Israeli security state was not able to protect the Israeli homeland. What, what effect would that have? How would, what sort of crisis would that create? Thank you very much for the questions. Not only the women, but there are some many other initiatives, some very, very courageous NGOs and other groups in Israel of young people, of old people, who are not ready to keep silent, who are doing anything possible to fight the occupation. I will just mention Breaking the Silence, B'Tselem, Rabbis for Human Rights, Physicians for Human Rights, uh, Ta'ayush, Machsom Watch, many, many other groups. The only problem with those initiatives is that they are hardly delegitimized by the media and by the government and they are, lose, they are losing their effectiveness. And I really, I admire those people, but I am one of those who believe that the change must start with a political change, and all those supporting powers will be able to bring a change, but they will not make the change by themselves because they have to overcome an impossible mission, and this is to stand in front the Israeli establishment. Take, for example, Breaking the Silence. That's a really fascinating example. I guess part of you know about it. Breaking the Silence was an NGO which was established by Israeli soldiers who were released from the army and, and decided that they want to tell about their own army service and what they have been doing personally. So this is not this liar, this traitor, Gidon Levy, who tells us all those lies about the occupation. Those are soldiers, combats from the IDF who just got a little older, a little 
less blind and wanted to tell their stories. And the whole system recruited itself, media and establishment, army and, and, and the politicians, to delegitimize them. And today, I will not get into the details, they are really criminalized, delegitimized, and they lost their effectiveness. They lost their effectiveness. And I say it with a lot of sorrow because they are really wonderful, courageous people. But it's very hard to start it from there. This is important, very important, but this will not bring the change. I must be frank with you. About dual uh, uh, citizenship, first of all, all the Jewish members of parliament, as far as I know, don't have a dual citizenship. They're all only citizens of Australia. And I wouldn't like to get to all the rest because it's really a domestic issue. I can only say one thing again and again to the Jewish community, to the Jewish representatives. Remember one thing, and I said it and I'll say it again and again. The blind support to Israel is not friendship. I have to say it again. I hear again and again those arguments, yes, but let's not speak about it. Yeah, Israel went wrong, but we cannot say it. Why can't you say it? Why can't you say it? Why can't you say that Israel went wrong and you believe in Israel and you care about Israel and you care about its future and Israel went wrong? Why can't you say it? And why, why, why do you want to hide it? Under which carpet do you want to hide this? And what do you think? You do good to Israel by hiding it? You, go, you do good to Israel that you support Israel? Netanyahu came back from this country. He never came back in such flying colors like from Australia. He, doesn't, he didn't stop to talk about those wonderful days he had here, the best days of his term. I don't want Netanyahu to feel comfortable about... about strikes on Israel. Until now, we have to remember two things. Violence played until today always against the Palestinians. And we will not get now into the question what is terror and what is not terror. If bombing a refugee camp from an airplane while putting, pushing a button is not terror and trying to stab a soldier in a checkpoint is terror, each of us can decide by himself what is the definition of terror. Just remember one thing, the terror is and was always the weapon of the weak ones, was the weapon of the Jews when they were struggling to create a, a state of their own. But I don't see that violence like Hezbollah and others will bring any progress. And above all, we have to remember that Israel is so strong and possesses any possible weapons in the world. Yes, it will be hard in Israel, but I don't think that we will reach an, a change throughout violence. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, I just wanted to say thank you, and uh, I've learned a lot from your columns over the years. Um, I saw a photo of you um, smiling with our foreign minister, Julie Bishop. Uh, you, you've spoken a bit about what it was like in general terms about meeting our politicians. I wondered if you could name specifically the politicians and uh, what impressions you got of them. Thank you. Mr. Levy, you mentioned one myth or fairy tale, God's chosen people. 
Well, are there any gods? Probably not. But isn't a second myth or fairy tale the promised land? And finally, I'm a prophet of the bleeding obvious. I expect Israel to be nuked as the next civilization to be nuked. If I was an Israeli, I'd get out now. Okay. Um, you uh, mentioned the permanent uh, occupation of uh, Palestine. You mentioned the occupation of Palestine, but in fact it is colonization, uh, the way you put it. And my question is now what happened in Iraq, in Syria, in Lebanon, in Egypt, in Saudi Arabia, in Yemen? Is that anything to do with, or is Israel behind that? And what do the Israelis think about what's happening around them? Have they have, have hand in manipulating the situation, or they don't care as much as they don't care about Palestine and Palestinians? Yeah. One. Yes. Yes. Thank you for your work, and I'm well aware as an ex-politician of the power of the Jewish lobby in, in Australia. Uh, of the solutions in the medium term, Jeff Halpin talks about a one-state solution. I don't know how realistic that is. And it does seem to me that the existing government wants to have the status quo on the ground established, the world muzzled, if you want to put it that way, in terms of criticism from Australia and America and Australia itself, and then to talk of a, of a regional solution, which presumably means that the refugees all disappear into the countries in which they are, and so the reality just becomes in Israel itself. Do you think that's their strategy and do you think they can get away with it? Yes. I was asked to keep the uh, meeting with uh, Mrs. Bishop uh, private. <laughs> I can tell you uh, that she was extremely nice, extremely kind. She even gave me uh, two nice presents and I'm very grateful to her. In a certain stage, I decided that I changed the subject and I started to talk with her about Burma because I felt that uh, talking about the Palestinians will lead me to nowhere. We really were on total, total different basis. I mean, I did my best uh, to try to open her mind, but I'm not sure I succeeded. And this was the most diplomatic sentence I could say. If someone expects her, and I called her when I went into the room with my uh, poor charm, or pathetic charm, I called her the next prime minister, <laughs> as I understand she might be, uh, but I'm not sure I'm hoping for this. <laughs> the, the promised land is another obviously myth, and you were right in describing it so, and um, many Israelis base their claim on Israel on this divine promise 2,000 years ago. That's the full right to believe in it. Each of us has the right to believe in anything. I don't see any connection between sovereignty and divine promises. The fact that Abraham was walking in Hebron might touch somebody. I couldn't care less where he walked and where he didn't walk. But in any case, it doesn't give me any privilege in Hebron, which is a pure Palestinian city and should be a pure and f free Palestinian city. 
the development in the Middle East around us. I think, I'm not sure, I'm not here to speak on behalf of all the Israelis, but I think the general mood in Israel is, as once Menachem Begin, the Prime Minister, phrased it when there was the war between Iraq and uh, Iran, that they wish, we wish success to both parties. <laughs> I think Israelis enjoy very much the killing of Arabs by Arabs, and we all support both sides in wishing them good success. But beyond this, changes are taking place in the Middle East quite dramatically and quite rapidly. Not all of them are positive from the point of view of Israel, but I want to say two sentences in this context. The wet dream of Israel right now is to make peace with the most moderate, Western, free, Republic of Saudi Arabia or monarchy of Saudi Arabia, those moderates, liberals, human rights activists, they deserve peace with Israel and Israel deserves peace with them. But one thing will not happen, and I'm very afraid to disappoint all the Israelis who think that we will make peace with Saudi Arabia and Saudi Arabia will send a sheikh or a prince crown to be ambassador in Tel Aviv and Israel will get out of its way. We made peace with the Arab world. By the end of the day, nothing will happen before we will solve the Palestinian problem. And as long as we don't do this, nothing will happen. And the Israelis better know it. Netanyahu is really sure that by having any kind of contacts with those corrupted regimes, he will get any further. I think that he is going to be disappointed. One state, I spoke about it. But it's very, very true that the main interest of Israel is now maintaining the status quo, not doing nothing, and trying to postpone everything. And still, I suggest you, each of you who meets an Israeli, each of you who meets a right-winger, each of you who meet a supporter of Israel, a traditional supporter of Israel, don't argue with them. Don't tell them how bad the occupation is. Don't tell them how criminal the settlements are. Just ask them one question. Where are you aiming to? What is your goal? How do you see the reality in 20 years' time? Not in 100 years. Today, Palestinians and Jews between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean are 50-50, including Gaza. 50-50, exactly 50-50. It might be that very soon the Palestinians will be a majority, but it doesn't matter. What is your goal, dear Israelis, dear supporters of Israel? What do you see will be in 20 years? Some of them have this fantasy that the Palestinians will vanish one way or the other. Gone with the wind. Gone with the wind. I will say here that your foreign minister doesn't see it as a very far-fetched idea, I must say. <laughs> One day, they will not be there. We will tyrannize them so much that they will leave. The problem is that this is not a realistic program because it doesn't happen. Unfortunately so, they stick to their land. They are ready to pay any price, any sacrifice. They are strong, they are devoted, and they will never leave. And therefore, we have to raise the question, where are we going to? And I'm afraid you'll never get an answer. Now, I've got uh, the signal from the management that we need to wrap up in a few minutes. However, if you ask your questions very quickly, 
we can just fit them in. Okay. Thank you for, uh, for coming out and speaking out about this. I'm a history teacher and I teach the Holocaust to my Year 12 students as passionately as I teach the Arab-Israeli conflict to my legal studies kids. They know all about the Holocaust as they should. I get to legal studies, Palestinians are non-existent. The narrative about um, the situation, particularly with the commemoration of lately the Battle of Beersheba, which has become an Israeli conflict and battle from World War I, the Netanyahu in his um, US trip saying hummus is a great Israeli dish, um, you name it, the cultural rewriting of history. How do you re-own that narrative and give it the Palestinian perspective without, like you said, saying, oh, the occupation's bad. How do the Palestinians get a voice when they are so politically and economically weak? Thank you very much. I'd like to ask about the possibility or the feasibility of engaging ordinary people, ordinary uh, Palestinians and ordinary Israelis in influencing their future. For example, what is the feasibility of having a referendum which would engage all Palestinians and all Israelis um, just something like Brexit, yes and no. Asking the following question, for example. Do you agree to work and commit to work for making the next generation a generation where both Palestinians and Israelis share the land in peace? What's the possibility of such a referendum? Thank you. Okay. Um, I've got a very quick question. I understand Germany is still paying reparations to the State of Israel. Um, I'm just wondering if this is true, whether we could suggest to Germany that they no longer deserve them. Did they no longer deserve yeah. Last question. Thank you. Yes. So, as an Israeli, I'm really curious to know, so for so many years you've tried to tell Israeli stuff that they just don't want to hear. How do you, in the personal level, how, how does it make you, how do you feel about it? How do you feel about the people and how do you, how can you avoid uh, feeling full of hate and bitterness towards the people in Israel? Thank you for all the questions. They were really excellent questions. I'll try to be brief. Uh, how to get a Palestinian a voice? It's a long way to go. I think the Palestinians have a voice. I think that uh, they had a stronger voice a few years ago when there was more hope and when they were more united. I think we will not find today, and all the questions are looking for something instant which will bring a solution, an instant solution. It will not go like this. It will be a long and gradual process and unless something unexpected will happen. And the Palestinians are having a voice. We heard and we are hearing more and more young Palestinians, mainly those who live outside, I'm afraid, who raise a voice. BDS is a creation of Palestinians, of young Palestinians, young intellectuals who created it. That's a voice. BDS is a voice. And there will be more voices. Yes, it's very hard to raise their voice. It's very hard like to people like me 
to raise my voice. And still we are all gathered in this wonderful evening tonight. And we should try to listen and try to raise our voices as much as we can. About a referendum, that's obviously a wonderful, wonderful idea. There's one slight problem that Israel will never let it happen because we know what will be the answer. And um, if we'll get to this stage that an Israeli government or an Israeli public opinion will push for a referendum, will be almost about a real major change. But this is still far away because Israelis will never agree, not on a referendum, and for sure not a referendum which will include the Palestinians. How dare you? With those terrorists, we will ask their view. I mean, how revolutionary can you get? How much of a traitor can you be? How can you dare to ask this question at all? Referendum which will include the, the Palestinians? I mean, they don't know to read and write. How will they answer the questions? About compensations from Germany, Germany is not compensating the state anymore. Germany is just compensating uh, Holocaust survivors who are passing away. And I wouldn't touch this. Germany has a very supportive policy toward Israel, including supplying Israel with more submarines than hospitals. Uh, God knows why Israel needs six submarines. Each of them costs billions and billions of dollars. But that's the Israeli choice. And Germany is doing a big, big discount in those deals. Uh, you know, if we will get to a situation where Germany will be the last problem, then we reach quite far. Germany has more problems than others with the past, obviously, and, and it should be like this. And therefore, I would like to uh, say that I, whenever I'm in Germany, I say the same things that I think everyone, everywhere else, and I think Germans should raise their voice, and I'll tell you something more than this. The German people also has a special responsibility to the Palestinian people, not only to the Jewish people, but that because the Palestinians are the indirect victims of the Holocaust. The Jews are the direct victims. Without the Holocaust, my parents would have never come to Israel, and I guess I would have never come to here to lecture to you, and you would have never listened to me. So maybe it was a good deal. <laughs> How do I feel uh, in Israel? Uh, I don't like to talk about myself so much. Uh, it's not very pleasant always, as you can imagine yourself. But if you are really convinced, I I'll say it in a very simple uh, uh, way. I don't have any other choice. I was considering to become a restaurant critic. But then I realized that I'm not so good in it. I like to dine, I like to go to restaurants, but I'm not so good in criticizing restaurants. I have no other choice. And therefore, that's a, a very delicate hint. <laughs> that's the way you do it here. So my last sentence will be, I don't have any other choice but to continue. Many times it takes a prize, many times you hear also support, and my last sentence will be to all of you. I really, really, I'm really grateful for this evening. For me, it was a really a very encouraging and inspiring experience. And remember one thing, 
Whenever people tell you that the conflict between the Palestinians and the Israelis, which is not a conflict, is an occupation, whenever you hear that this conflict, or whatever you define it, is complicated, is complex, remember, it is not complicated and not complex. Whenever they tell you it's not black and white, tell them it is black and white. Thank you very much. Thanks for listening to the Sydney Ideas podcast series. For more information about our upcoming events or to listen to more podcasts, head to sydney.edu.au forward slash sydney underscore ideas.